Okay, we good? Uh, yeah, that's so helpful, how good it is to consider the attributes of God. I was just thinking this earlier, that what we're doing is growing and wanting to know God. I mean, that video is a really perfect little prep to thinking about it. We are considering aspects of God, and as I'll talk about in a minute or two, the nature also of knowing him even in creation that ultimately points towards him that someday all that intermediariness that keeps us from glorying in God when you look at the ocean will be gone, right? The ocean won't necessarily be gone, but the intermediariness, uh, perhaps the broken, sinful, finite limitations that we have will not be what it is currently. We will appreciate God fully. So tonight we're on omnipotence. God is omnipotent, uh, as all of the omni ones means. Omni means all, and uh, potens is a, I believe it was Latin word meaning powerful. God is all powerful. There's a few biblical data points to consider, um, and then there's several more, um, as always, as we go along. Um, biblical data points regarding God's power. I don't have any of these on the screen. I'll have some of them, but these beginning ones, I think. Oh yeah, I list them on your on your sheet. Um, two under two subcategories: biblical data. Uh, the Bible describes, describes God as uh, almighty. God is almighty. Genesis 17, 1. Um, this whole list, I believe this was from Willing Lane Craig, by the way. I just was like, I'll use this format, these verses, minus a couple or adding a couple. Uh, but Genesis 17, 1, this is the appearance of God uh, when he appears to uh, Abram. It says, quote, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. The Hebrew word there that's translated as God Almighty is El Shaddai. Maybe rings a bell, um, which means God Almighty. That's how he presents himself to Abram, in this case, as all-powerful, as God Almighty. He is Almighty. That's the beginning of the Bible, very, very close anyways to the beginning in Genesis. It's in the end of the Bible. As you go through, it ends similarly in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Revelation 19.6 says, quote, Then I heard, John the Revelator in his vision, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals crying. Right? Imagine being at the base of the uh, Niagara Falls or something times 10,000 or something that, you know, in our humanness would be ear-splitting, uncapable un- of standing it, something to that effect. They were crying, hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. God is called Almighty in Scripture. It's near the end of the Bible, and it's describing him as Almighty. Um, it's seen in his creational power, of course. We'll talk about this. Genesis 1.1 begins with the word, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first verse of the Bible. Uh, Psalm 33, verse 9 um, extols God's power in creation. It says, quote, Psalm 33, verse 9, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood forth. An implicit extolling of God's capabilities. This is what the psalmist is singing and writing about, rejoicing in God's power to do things, which is an incredible thing to reflect upon. God does things, and he has all He is almighty, powerful to do so. Likewise, he can do all things, or he can do anything. Obviously, these things are very, very similar, but the Bible actually has these uh, maybe fine distinctions, but they're there. God can do all things. 
or can do anything. Uh, oh, I forgot what verse this is. I think this is Jeremiah 32 as well. Is anything, quote, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is the rhetorical question. And he's talking to uh, Sarah and Abraham now at the time. He says, at the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring and Sarah shall have a son. She's too old. She's barren. It's, in, it's impossible. And he asks, is anything too hard? Uh, obviously, the answer is no, because he tells her she's going to be pregnant. Is anything too hard? No. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Quote, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? He asks. That's the question he asks uh, in Jeremiah 32. Is anything too hard for me? We're to think about. And obviously, there should be no doubt about the answer. He continues, Our Lord God, it is thou who hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for thee. So, doesn't leave you wondering, obviously. And this is a big deal that God reveals himself this way in Jeremiah and that uh, we have it, he has it preserved for us. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is. At the end of Job, if you remember Job's whole situation, he was humiliated and God gives him all these questions and provides all this evidence of creation. Consider this, consider that, the foundations of the earth, behemoth and, uh, uh, what's the dragon name again? Leviathan, thank you. I think it's a dragon of some kind anyway. Uh, but Job 42, verse 1, uh, 42, 1. Then Job, Job answered the Lord, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. He can do all things. He can do all things. God can do all things. Finally, Matthew, of course, it's not just the Old Testament. Matthew 19, 26. Jesus, Matthew 19, 26 says, uh, famous verse, obviously. When, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. Uh, so I'm not going to spend much time in here. I will encourage you uh, in this next part, uh, but I'll encourage you. Uh, Willing and Craig, I think, has some of the most helpful stuff on this, but as soon as you say that, um, can you do all things, all sorts of questions come to people's mind that God can't do. The Bible specifically says God can't lie. So I just got done quoting a bunch of verses, right, that say God can do all things. So uh, why does James say he can't? There's something he can't do. There's a, actually, I think, a considerable number of things that you might say God can't do. He can't lie, James says. Or, you know, to be whatever. I don't know. I find it fun and silly, but can he make a square circle? God if he says you can do all things, then you can't say a sentence that says God can't make a square circle. Ah, you know, crap. Or uh, can he make a fa famous one? Well, there's a bunch of famous ones, but God can, can he make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? And if he's all-powerful and he can do anything, can he make a rock or whatever so heavy that even he can't lift it? Such that he makes it and he can't do something now and, you know, he implodes or something. Uh, and the answer is... In, in, in simple form is no, he can't do those things. He can't make a square circle and he can't lie. He can't do a whole number of a uh, host of things that the Bible actually either says or implies. He certainly can't make a rock so heavy he can't lift, but that's not a limitation on his power. 
It's not a limitation on God's power. Here's Lane Craig. I find this is just what's so, so helpful to her. Oh, uh, oh, that's a... Did I put that out of order? I did. We'll come back to that, maybe. Oh, I forgot to switch these around. That's okay. Here's Lane Craig. His answer to that. Quote, The source of the limitation... God can't do something. He's limited in doing something. The source of the limitation is purely logic. And logic, Lane Craig believes... It seems right to me, is based in the nature of God himself. It is a reflection of his own essence, logic, that is. It is a reflection of his own essence and nature that God acts in logically consistent ways. Or you simply might say logically consistent with himself. Or he is consistent with himself, as maybe a poor man's definition of logic Uh, or to put it more succinctly that's me I just find this helpful he says he uh, one more time finishes this little section he has Lane Craig does quote the limits to God's power quote unquote the limits to God's power are simply those of logic or himself when people talk about logical impossibilities they are not really talking about things that God cannot do because those are not things at all They are just contradictory combinations of words. A square circle. Right? That's not a thing. That's just not a thing. It's not something God can't do because it's not a thing. And it's not a thing because God is consistent with himself. And you could go on and on. You know, he can't lie. It's not something he can't do. It's his very nature not to lie. It's not a limitation upon him. He's logically consistent with himself. So... I find that really helpful. You know, even just that. They're not contradictory. They're just contradictory combinations of words. Hey, I'm a, I'm, can God make a married bachelor? Oh, and then you don't know. Oh, he can't? Oh, no, he can't do that. Oh, he's not all powerful, right? It's just stupid. Just don't say things. That's just dumb words put together that don't mean anything. That's not what a bachelor is. <laughs> yeah, that's just not a, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a sentence, but it doesn't make sense. So anyways, you can go to Link Craig for more help on that um, and others as well. But God not being able to do things is not actually a limit on his power. It's simply inconsistent with his nature. Uh, so uh, here's a couple real, real short. This is fairly obvious, um, but we went through that for a particular reason first. A couple of definitions. I forgot. I got these out of order. Uh, what is power, then what does it mean to be all-powerful? What is a pithy definition of omnipotence? What does it mean that God is all-powerful? Something like this. God can do whatever he wills, whatever he wants, in accordance with his character. That's more or less just a definition of what I just went through, or a, a summary of just what I went through. He can do whatever he wills in accordance with his character. Maybe more simply put, I can't remember who said that, but this is um, uh, Wayne Gruden, the second one. God is able to do all his holy will. And he puts the word holy in there not to be just rhetorical, but meaning his will is such that he's consistent. He doesn't lie, for instance. It's not a limitation. It's not who he is. So he can do whatever he wills in accordance with his character, or God is able to do all things in accordance with his holy will. Um, so there's a number of ways that obviously we see God's power. Um, there's at least a few ways we can categorize it. Um, 
one is in creation. God's power is seen in creation. And this is under a subpoint called creation and our mistaken modern mindset. In creation, again, I think I hit this last week briefly, but Romans 1.20. This is a really, really important verse to get in your head about the nature of God's uh, revelation of himself. God's self-disclosure. He has decided to disclose things about himself that we are thankful for. This is why it's not an arrogant statement. You maybe heard me say that before, but uh, I mean, you're going to run into people in your life at some point. Who are you to say you know who God is and what he's like? That's so arrogant, so prideful. Like there's a, millions of people, billions of people, and you are right, right? Well, you say so because he's revealed himself and in one way he's revealed himself is in the world. Romans 1.20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God's eternal power, which is quite interesting. Honestly, I never emphasize this nearly as much, at least in my head, until doing omnipotence just in the last few days, is the two things that he lists here what exactly they all entail, I don't know. Eternal power and divine nature. But power is one of them. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Um, his eternal power is made known in what he made. We perceive God's power. We actually see and experience it to some uh, important degree. Well, extremely important. Paul goes later on to say, therefore, uh, sinners are without excuse before God's judgment seat because of it. So I'm getting a lot more serious than that. He did this, he revealed himself, and he did it on purpose to reveal himself. Isn't that interesting? He didn't have to do that, but he did. And I think, I mean, I may be a broken record on this stuff, but it doesn't get old for me personally. Maybe you guys, <laughs> it's a broken record. But I think we undervalue what we witness of God's power in this way. I think we undervalue it like hardcore. When we look into nature, we are perceiving God's power, among other things. We're perceiving it. It's the reason you get chills in the face of, uh, you know, whatever, uh, a giant explosion or of a huge waterfall fall or whatever. You perceive, we perceive God's power when we look and are experiencing it to some degree. Ultimately, we are perceiving God in all things. That's what Romans 1.20 is getting at. We are perceiving God in measure in all things. Uh, again, from last, uh, last week, but this another important verse in this, Psalm 19, just verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We are experiencing it. But back to my point about undervaluing this, in the modern world, we have been trained since childhood to not see things this way. You have, and I have. Assumed and maybe explicitly, but it's been the air we breathe that we don't see the world this way. We certainly, most of the time, much of the time, don't think of it that way, which really matters, that we, when we look into the world and think explicitly, uh, gazing upon the sunset or whatever, the power of God, the beauty of God, let alone give thanks and praise and uh, heartfelt gratitude and awe and all these things. Uh, we don't think of it well. 
you know, this is just, just for kicks, but we have presuppositions at operation in our mind. You, if you're a Christian, you see the same set of data points as an unbelieving person. Everything that you look at is the same, right? Not an iota of difference, other, other than the uh, you know, social media and news bubbles that we find ourselves in, because we only listen to X, Y, and Z, and they only, you know, that kind of thing. But looking at the world, we actually see the same thing, but come to extremely different conclusions, and not just conclusions, but ways of life, faith, uh, faiths, uh, loves, right? How does that happen? Well, it happens because these lenses that you're using, that we have on, affect everything about us, affect how we see the world, and of course, most importantly, they affect the way and nature in which we understand and worship God. They actually affect that, uh, affect that in our lives. So when we look at the world that Paul is talking about that is displaying God's power, and we're naturally trained to be essentially atheists, most of public school education is a secular atheistic framework, and everything else in the world, practically. <laughs> and so we don't see God in ways that we ought to, in intentional ways. So I'm going to quote Tozer at this. Uh, A.W. Tozer has this. In, I had to quote the whole thing. There's like four slides. It was so good. I was in my thing. I'm marking the whole thing. I'm like, I'm just going to put this whole thing on the screen and make this my point, even though I'm rambling on right now. So this is incredible, and this is what I mean. So I, can, I don't know. I can't say it better than Tozer, so there we go. I'll just read him. Um, there he is. This is in the Knowledge of the Holy. Tiny little book on, on, on attributes of God, by the way, it's, which has been really, really helpful to me. He says this. Uh, One cannot long read the scriptures sympathetically without noticing the radical disparity between the outlook of men of the Bible and that of modern men, modern humans. We are today suffering from a secularized mentality. He wrote this a while back, by the way. Where the sacred writers saw God, we, in the modern world, we see the laws of nature. Notice the distinction. Their world was fully populated. Ours is all but empty. Their world, the writers of the Bible, their world was alive and personal. Ours is impersonal and dead. God ruled their world. God ruled their world. Ours is ruled by the laws of nature, and we are always once removed from the presence of God. And what are these laws of nature that have displaced God in the minds of millions? What are they? He goes on to give his uh, couple uh, explanations. Law has two meanings. One is all external rule enforced by authority, such as the common rule against robbery and assault. The word is also used to denote the uniform way things act in the universe. But this second use of the word is erroneous. What we see in nature is simply the paths of God's power and wisdom take through creation. I'm going to read that again. What we see in nature is simply the paths God's power and wisdom take through creation. Properly, these are phenomena, not laws, but we call them laws by analogy with the arbitrary laws of society. Science observes, he goes to make uh, uh, 
very helpful distinctions here between science and religion, or you might say simply Christian faith, Christian belief in a second. But it says, quote, science observes how the power of God operates, observes how the power of God operates. Think of that. Whoever, who was told that in your science classes growing up? Here are the ways in which we understand how God is operating in the world. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, sorry. Science observes how the power of God operates, discovers a regular pattern somewhere, and fixes it as a law. The uniformity of God's activities in, who, in his creation enables the scientist to predict the course of natural phenomena. The trustworthiness of God's behavior in his world is the foundation of all scientific truth. Upon it, the scientist rests his faith, and from there, he goes on to achieve great and useful things in such fields as those of navigation, chemistry, agriculture, and the medical arts. Religion, on the other hand, Christian faith, goes back, uh, goes back of the nature of God to the nature, I think it's supposed to say. It is concerned not with the footprints of God along the paths of creation, but with the one who treads those paths concerned with God. Religion is interested primarily in the one who is the source of all things, the master of every phenomenon. For this one, for this one, philosophy has various names, the most horrendous that I have seen being that supplied by Rudolf Otto, quote, the absolute, the gigantic, never resting, active world stress. I've not read Rudolf Otto, by the way, but... The Christian delights to remember that this world stress once said, I am, and the greatest teacher of them all directed his disciples to address him as a person. Quote, when he pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, our Father. The men of the Bible everywhere communed with this gigantic absolute in language as personal as speech affords. And with him, prophet and saint walked in a rapture of devotion Warm, intimate, and deeply satisfying. That is our God. That is our Lord who has all power, who we understand and see in his world. And we ought to think and say these ways. One more, much, much shorter. Uh, Edward Carnell said this, quote, The Christian defines nature as what God does with his creation and a natural law as but a mathematically exact description upon the part of man of how God has elected to order his creation. For the Christian, there are no absolute natural laws, but only the mind of God. From man's point of view, the regularity of the universe is called law, but from God's point of view, it is called will. Ah, I find those... So helpful. There's maybe some distinctions in there that you could, uh, you know, uh, quibble with and, and, you know, depths to go in clearly more on those things. But the fundamental point there is how you view the world. What language do we use? And so we see what we want to see and we understand the world, how we want to understand it and how we've been taught and trained to do so. And it really matters. I mean, I think it really matters. Our language reflects this and shapes this in our minds and our hearts. It really does have that effect. If you don't think how you speak and understand the world affects what you love and treasure, uh, you need to wake up. It does. 
has a huge effect. And that, you know, just that, that whole point from Tozer of how different it used to be for the biblical writers, for instance, and from different Christians and throughout the ages to compared to now, the modern mindset. I can't remember when Tozer wrote that, but it, it was over 100 years ago, I think. And how much more now? How much more now godless view of the world we have? It's, un, it's unfortunate. And it's small. You know, I love how he talks through that. It's not just wrong and that's not biblical. It's small and pathetic and weak and impersonal and empty and, you know, vacant, vapid. He didn't say those, but, you know, it's so much lesser a world to consider than the world the Bible describes and that we as Christians ought to enjoy. We are experiencing the power of God. It's great. So we either see and understand the natural world to show forth God's power or we don't. Uh, consider this. This is a continuing on the same line. It's one of my favorite scenes uh, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader that gets at the distinction of how you see the world and how you talk about it makes a, a difference. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is uh, a anybody read the Voyage of Dawn Treader? Who's read the Dawn Treader? Most half whatever. The star uh, comes down and he's a guy. His name's Ramondu. And he's on this island, and he's uh, beginning to get younger and younger. You see his age. It's this weird thing, right? It's in Narnia, in case you missed it. It's in Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia. It's in a different world, right? Different dimension or portal or whatever. And they're talking with him about being a star. He says this. Golly, said Edmund under his breath. He's a retired star. Aren't you a star any longer? Asked Lucy. He said, I am a star at rest, my daughter, answered Ramondu. In our world, said Eustace, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And Ramondu responds, Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. In our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. No, that's what it's made of. That's not what it is. And Lewis, in you know, insane form, is teaching some really deep philosophical, epistemological things to children and adult readers about the nature of how you view the world and how you talk about it. It matters. That's what it's made of. That's accurate. Your mondo knows, you know, about, about the real world or whatever our world. But that's not what it is. What it is is a different kind of question. It's a deeper question. Uh, and God has made the world. God has used his power to do so, and it shows his power, showing him. So how freeing this ought to be for us. That's one thing that occurs to me. And therefore, in a very important sense, how much more exciting. Like this ought to be exciting. And I think as you, I mean, we have a long ways to go on this. I have a long ways to go on this. Maybe some of you guys have barely tasted this kind of thing. But as I've tasted it, it's not just hypothetically an exciting thing. It is really good to my soul and my mind to think these ways. It is a better experience of the world. It's exciting. And I even think of sort of thinking of it as evangelistically. It's an exciting evangelism. Uh, we're supposed to share the gospel, explicit gospel, by all means. I mean, it's necessary, extremely important, yes. And also, something to the effect like this. Outdo unbelievers in your appreciation for the natural world. Outdo them, right? Outdo unbelief with excitement and eagerness about God's world. Be the most excited and eager. Not, not um, you know, don't choose to have an affectation of, oh, 
you know, and you're just really annoying all the time because you're just constantly trying to be excited. But seek it, ask for it, you know, strive for it, pray for it, these kind of things. Put yourself in the word and in the world in such a way that your excitement would overflow, right? It would be a genuine thing. Outdo the atheistic mindset of our modern world by your genuine curiosity and awe of God as seen in his creation, for instance. I think that's, you know, a big task. I think that's an incredibly, I don't know, whatever, beautiful, exciting task. You guys, most of you, many of you, (laughs) most I think is fair, are in school or have been recently or in the workforce and have before you, and then multiply that by, you know, however many Christians, the opportunity to be in various fields and be the kind of people that God would have us be in his world and others see it. It's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus saving you. But man, it's a big deal (laughs) that we would experience God's world this way and magnify his power. Okay. God's power in creation. There's that preservation. So we see in creation. We also see God's power in preserving his creation. Uh, And the Bible is really explicit about this. This isn't merely adding uh, distinctions for distinction's sake. Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1 is this really big chapter about the magnificent and preeminence of Jesus. He's everything. He says this. For by Jesus, all things were created, so there's creation again, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Hebrews 1, 3, or 12, 3. I can't remember which one this is. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's definitely not the right verse. (laughs) Sorry. So just listen. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I saw a, um, (laughs) I laugh, it's ridiculous, but there was a, I don't know what it was exactly, but an atheistic mocking uh, skit one time in which uh, they were mocking Christian homeschooling mainly, I think, or at least a Christian view of, of the natural world. And the kid came home and he was saying to his mom, or his, 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 uh, he was at secular school, he was at public school, and he came home and mom, he was excited to tell his mom about the atom and the different parts of the atom, and he's ex- explaining, and his mom corrects him, like, well, son, that's close. But actually, the other component and it goes to a, a visual is Jesus and they go into the atom and the neutron or the uh, yeah, I don't know it's science at all whatever Adam's doing what the atom's doing right and the electron protons are flying around and then it shows it adds one there's actually another one it's Jesus and it's a little ball of like an electron and is a picture of you know a drawing of Jesus flying around and she corrects him kind of like kind of harshly sort of and the whole point of the whole thing is to mock how stupid Christians view of everything is they just don't really understand science and creation, and they just, well, Jesus holds it together, and that's their, their mocking uh, what they understand. Of course, it's a straw man. It's a really, really light straw man of what Christians believe, but sometimes justified because Christians sometimes don't think very clearly about these things, and so he's, Jesus is part of the atoms. That's how it works, right? Well, it's a stupid straw man, um, but... It is, <laughs> it is a legitimate question to ask, okay, we don't really know. 
Like we give these words, right? The strong nuclear force, Abe can fill all this stuff in. And then weak nuclear force and blah, 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 right? We give these words, the things that all hold together, but the Bible declares by the word of his power, he holds things together. So it is true to say our God, by his power, all things hold together. So you teach your kids that. You should believe that. It's not foolish and stupid to believe that it's God's power holding it together. And yeah, of course, you use these words in science. It's not wrong to have give these phrases and understand the atom. We're exploring his creation, what he's done. And oh my gosh, our answer is so much better than everything just popped out of nothing, right? Oh, it just popped out and it just does. It just, it's a law. It's just a law. It just does do it. And you say, okay, how? Why? Where's that power coming from? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Well, we do know. It's the Lord. It just is. It's amazing. There it is. No, it's not. I don't know why I'm all off in my verses there. Uh, so, anyways. <laughs> uh, the deeper answer to the question. So, for instance, if you were asked that, why does matter hold together? And your first instinct or your main one or whatever is to say something to the effect of the, well, the strong nuclear force acts upon blah, blah, blah. Right? You might have the wrong lenses on, at least in a certain way. The answer is fine so far as it goes, but the deeper answer is our God's power. God's power preserves all things the way he desires to preserve them. And it matters that we talk and think this way. The Bible does. God preserves creation. Uh, uh, next, God's power is seen in faith. It'll be much more brief here. This is Hebrews 12. There we go. Uh, Jesus created and authored our faith. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He founded our faith by his power. Romans 12, 3 says a similar thing. For by, grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here's the main point with this. is, And, I mean, you know, we're a little too familiar with it perhaps. But the main point is that the more we understand and comprehend our actual sinfulness and our actual disinclination to love God and love others... Uh, the more we understand that, the more we see of God's power in giving us the grace to overcome it or to free us from it. And I put it that way because oftentimes we just think of God saving us, God's power as, it doesn't come to the forefront of our mind perhaps as the most, the height of miracles. Right? It's, it's easier and it is easier in a certain sense to look at the power in nature and all these things and see power. But to not draw the line to God's power also in giving us faith, in opening our eyes. It's an incredible power. <laughs> because we are, to put it lightly, uh, um, impossibly obstinate in our unbelief. But God is all-powerful and therefore can give us faith. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. <clears throat> so three effects of God's power upon us as we think about it. And this is in, uh, more or less in closing, just three things. I'm going to quote uh, is it Tozer on all these things. Or Pink. These are all really helpful. 
uh, one effect is that we would tremble. You know, it's true that perfect love casts out fear, uh, John says, but it does not cast out all kinds of fear. Cast out the kind of fear of condemnation. I think that's mainly what John has in mind. Perfect love casts out any fear of condemnation. He's now your father. You're not worried your father is going to condemn you and kill you and sentence you as a judge. You're not worried about that in your actual father and he's our father, but not all kinds of fear. Some fear is permanent and good. For instance, if you were to safely, safely pass close uh, by a volcano, you would be pitiable if you did not yet fear the power therein, an active volcano, right? You went by safely, it's not erupting exactly, and you go by and you're, you're not dead, and you didn't feel fear, you know, I mean, you're a fool. Uh, if a raging flood with all the force that can knock skyscrapers to the ground, for instance, were to pass below you in a valley, you would be a fool not to fear its power lest it fill the valley and overtake you. You feel the fear. Have you ever seen videos or been near? I mean, water is an incredibly powerful thing. That's a good fear. Or pipers. I really like pipers. A little illustration of a hiker on a, on a glacier and a giant windstorm, a winter storm comes upon him. And he's going to die. It's, you know, subthermal temperatures, you know, 100 mile an hour winds. And he finds a, a small cave, a small crevice in the glacier. And he gets in and he is safe. He's not dying from the thing. And he's out of the wind and he's safe. But two feet this way and it's a raging storm. And he's right to fear that storm. In Piper's analogy, the crevice is, is the saving grace of Jesus. He had, does save us from the power and the wrath of God. But it's still there. <laughs> and it's a right thing to fear in a right kind of way from the safety of Jesus. And so we tremble. It's not wrong and it's good. And even, it just occurred to me a few times going through this, even evangelistically to utilize these right things. Paul says he not only taught people in all wisdom, but he went about warning them. There is a thing of just getting people to believe by warning and preaching about hell and scaring the hell out of them, right, so to speak. I attended a couple things growing up in which it was literally a play and demons were on the stage and read and, and they were talking about it and they were scaring. I mean, everyone was just like, I don't want to go to hell. It looks terrible. And they gave a big uh, uh, altar call at the end. And a whole bunch of people came forward and I, you know, I don't know, of course, but it seemed fabricated to me to a large degree. There's a really wrong way to do that, but there's a right trembling and fearing of God's power. Obviously, if you're in unbelief, <laughs> clearly it's there, you ought to tremble and as, a, as a, uh, an aspect of what it means to call people to Jesus. Uh, A.W. Pink says this, Well, may all tremble before such a God. As he, this is at the end of his talking about God's all power, all, all, all omnipotence. To treat with impudence one who can crush us more easily than we can a moth is a suicidal policy. To openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence, who can rend us in pieces or cast us into hell at any moment he pleases, is the very height of insanity. To put it on its lowest ground, it is but the part of wisdom to heed his command. From Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And that uh, Isaac, Isaac Watts, right? His words towards that is helpful. That's the psalmist looking forward to the gospel. And we look now and see the son. 
Uh, secondly, adore. We have more than tremble. It's not the only thing. If that was the only exhortation, it'd probably be something weird and off there. But we have something to adore. We are granted uh, the gift of adoration to stand in awe of that power. It's a significant aspect, I suppose. It's, you know, um, that's further aspect. Uh, you know, you're in the crevice of the, uh, watching the storm crevice of the glacier, and you're safe. And you not only tremble and fear that storm, but you also stand in awe. I don't know if you ever, like, I always wanted to be a, a tornado chaser. I didn't always want to, but anytime I saw him on TV, I always thought, God, that'd be so cool. I don't think that anymore. I think because I have kids. I got too old. That'd be, I mean, it just sounds like a blast. And what is it about that? It's like you're risking your life, and it's, in many regards, really, really stupid job to pursue. But it sounds really, really fun. And I think it's a huge aspect of it is the power of a tornado. Like, it's just insane. Now you stand in awe. You ter- you're tremble and terrified. But if you're far enough away, it's like, wow. That's a good feeling, isn't it? It's so odd. It feels really good to see that kind of power. So uh, Pink says as well to this, well, he says all these, well, well may the enlightened soul adore such a God. The wondrous and infinite perfections of such a being all for fervent worship. Call for fervent worship worship. And he means call, I I think, naturally, spontaneously out of our souls. It's not just that you should worship, you should be affected. But when you stand in front of the tornado, it calls you out to worship. I mean, you're standing in awe of such power. He finishes, if men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with the wonderment and homage? With wonderment and homage. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonder? It's good. Finally, trust. Uh, Being affected, we ought to trust. Pink says this, No creature, not there, no creature in the entire universe has an atom of power save what God delegates. No creature in the universe has an atom of power save what God delegates. This was true of Satan and God's permission to torment Job. If you've read Job and been through that, we were a few years back. I'm sure most of you remember, however long ago that was, a couple years. Uh, Job was given permission and power to do to Job, or Satan was given permission and power to do to Job what you read, the misery and torment. God granted it to him. In Job, it's really explicit. Uh, it was true of Pilate when he boasted of his power over Jesus. Right? I have power to release you, life and to death, he says to Jesus. And Jesus responds, like I was saying, it's like thug life situation, right? <laughs> the glasses come on, Jesus, thug life. Really not very irreverent, but you know. Uh, you have no power but what has been given you from above, Jesus says to Pilate. Like, oh my gosh, if there's some things that should make us, you know, Stand in awe. Like, Jesus is after he's gotten scourged, I believe. Like, he's hurting big time. And he's level-headed enough to know his theology that gives him strength to make it through that, in part, which is, you know, it's not completely correcting Pilate. He's like, no, you don't. You don't have any power. He says, oh, no, he has power. You have no power except that which has been given you. It's been granted to you, Pilate. And he has a lot of power over Jesus' life in that sense. This is great. 
And then obviously, it's true in any and all circumstances in our lives. That God has power. God has all power. And any power that is wielded against you, it ultimately is subject to God's omnipotence. And seriously, we have to believe this actively in order to live rightly. In not fear and anxiety, certainly in suffering and persecution, but in all things. Pink says, well may the Christian trust such a God. This is all under trust. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, we might well despair. But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer. No need too great for him to supply. No passion too strong for him to subdue. No temptation too powerful for him to deliver from. No misery too deep for him to relieve. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Including oneself. I've shared this story before. Story is not my story. Piper shares a story of a time when some gal he was counseling that, that told him she was far too sinful for God to forgive her and seemingly really believing it. She was despairing. And he, to some effect anyways, uh, rebuked her and said, to something effect, stop it. Stop saying lies about who God is and what he can or cannot do. And he, in his sharing of the story, recounts that it was life-changing for her because what she didn't know, what she thought was self-pity and not forgiving herself or something along those lines, was actually lies in her head about the power of God and the grace of God. He can't forgive you? That's that's a sin. (laughs) And it freed her. It freed her from all the guilt. She was able to come to God because she was believing right things about God. God granted to her and was freed from that and and believed. It was an amazing story. Lastly, closing. Uh, You know, we could have just talked this whole time, but this is actually the last thing. Ephesians 3.20, one of the best verses uh, along these lines. Now to him who is able... Well, he's God's power. He is able to do things. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And I'm told in the Greek, the superlatives, the words are uh, stacked up uh, separately and distinctly. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think about according to the power at work within us. That's the truth. God is able to do much more than we even than we ask or even think to ask because his power is at work within us. He is able to do that. To him be glory in the church, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Paul has this generational mind on himself, right? Amongst, in, his, in his mind. Uh, 
and so are we. I think the, uh, we've lost that significantly so. It's easy to overlook forever and ever. Throughout generations. He doesn't just, it's not just our private little own life that he has all this power to do. He's thinking of his great-grandchildren even, so to speak. Forever and ever. God can do it because God is omnipotent. Okay, let me say a word of prayer uh, and ask God to bless our time in the small group discussion.